And I really believe that there are tools in indigenous cultural toolboxes that can help all of us evolve our world into a better and more just place. And that, you know, language is one of those critical threads in the tapestry. Welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. Thanks for joining us today. Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine is a program where we talk to Native folks from around Minnesota just to hear about their gifts and what's going on in their lives. So how you doing, bro? I'm doing great. How are you? (laughs) I'm okay. (laughs) Good to see you again after our Zoom on Thanksgiving with yes. family. On your welcome day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, your welcome day. Um, but yeah, just, you know, um, it's a new week. Just the grind starts again. You know how it is. I do. And you know what I have every Monday night? What's that? Ojibwe language class. <laughs> that's, that's right. So all day on Monday, no matter what else I have going on, I'm like trying to desperately catch up on my um, my learnings. <laughs> How is that? It is awesome. So I'm taking the language class through the Minneapolis American Indian Center. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do it over Zoom. And there's just like a ton of people in the class. But it's so much information every week. Yeah. And it just seems like these sentences are getting like longer and longer and longer. (laughs) (laughs) I can't keep up. But it's good. Luckily, they they, uh, record the classes so I can watch them later. Oh, sure. Otherwise, I don't know what I would do. I mean, I, I can usually get on, but it's Monday nights is just <laughs> yeah. a tough day to try to spend two hours in class. So Nice. But it's fun. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I, um, I would like to get back into that at some point. I did do a couple years at the University of Minnesota, Dennis Jones. And uh, yeah, that was really great. It's, of course, if you're not speaking at it, all the time, it's you're gonna lose it. It's it really stinks. Just like any other language, <laughs> <Yeah, I know. laughs> you've got to be able to speak it. Yeah. And that's my thing. Like it takes so long, and I'm just like, you know, uh, uh, mm. uh, over every word. It feels like until it just hopefully it becomes natural one yeah. of these days. But I'm, I feel like every time I start learning a Jibwemoin, it's like I'm a, I've been, be- I'm a beginner. Yeah. Every single time I take it off. Exactly. Uh, we've been hearing, so hopefully, we've been hearing words, you know. As since we were kids and we've been exposed to that, but still, like, there's just so much to it. And it's, yeah. It's very daunting. It's so awesome. Yeah. So rich, so complex, just, ugh, beautiful. And that actually leads us to what we're going to be talking about today, which is language, preservation, and continuation of these rich native languages like Ojibwe, Ojibwe, just to name one in the Midwest, is, of course, of utmost importance especially during a time where a lot of native people are who grew up speaking it, you know, in their their first language are getting older and older and a lot mm-hmm. of native speakers nowadays are second language speakers like we hope to be like I, <laughs> second language fluent speakers, yes. But of course the work uh, you know continues in saving the language and you know keeping it going for the next generation. So real quick, mm-hmm. our dad, Bill Primo, mm-hmm. You know, kind of on this language subject, it took part in a recent project 
called Anjibimadizing, which is a project by our tribe, our band, Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe, mm-hmm. and published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press. And in the project, Anjibimadizing, 16 first speakers, dad included, partnered up with linguists, teachers, and Ojibwe language experts making new books mm-hmm. or new literature for Ojibwe language <laughs> learners like Moi. <laughs> Wait, that's French. <laughs> um, and our guest today was actually also a part of that project. So today uh, we are going to be talking with Dr. Anton Troyer. He is a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University, and he's the author of numerous books. I believe the last count is about 19. His latest book, The Language Warrior's Manifesto, addresses language revitalization. And I can't wait to dig into that topic. Uh, he's presented all around the country, Canada, internationally, and he's joining us today. And here he is. Welcome, Anton. Bonjour. Hey, everybody. Bonjour. Bonjour. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Very good. I guess, to, you know, just, just to start out, uh, could you just please introduce yourself? Yes, my name's Anton Troyer. I'm professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University. Nice. Uh, how, how are you doing uh, during all of the, you know, the pandemic and all of that. We're doing pretty good. I'm, um, I've been living Zoom life like so many others. And I have nine kids, so I've got five out the door, four here, and a couple of the others who are more recently launched are, you know, coming and going a little bit. But I do appreciate living in rural Minnesota, so we have a little bit of room to stretch and roam and, and whatnot. But yeah, it's been a scary time with COVID. Yeah. You know, even a lot of the elders we work with and things like that, it's been uh, it's been touchy navigating. I know you just you recently released a book called The Language Warriors Manifesto. Could we just get into that a little bit? Like, what did you set out to accomplish with that book? You know, um, I get to wear a lot of different hats in my work. So The Language Warriors Manifesto was really at the at the center of how all of this comes together for me. So... In part, you know, I'm telling my story as someone who has come back to his language and culture and how I did it. Um, In part, I'm telling the story of a large group of people who've been working really hard at indigenous language revitalization for a long time and are starting to have some success and answer the question how we did it. I'm in part even just addressing the importance of indigenous language and culture revitalization, which I think not everyone sees, and drawing the connections between this work and some of the really big issues of our time dealing with race relations and inequities. Uh, and, And I really believe that there are tools in indigenous cultural toolboxes that can help all of us evolve our world into a better and more just place. And that, you know, language is one of those critical threads in the tapestry, um, but there are many others too, and they they intersect. What does it mean uh, to you to be a language warrior? And how is it different than, you know, simply preserving language? Right. I, you know, Preservation is, you know, could be recordings, could be Mm. books, tools. But for a language to live, it has to live in the hearts and minds of human beings. You know, to me, what does it mean to 
be a warrior, it's very different from being a, a soldier, uh, where it's all about conforming in the effort to achieve some kind of victory. And I, I think the way of a warrior is different. And this doesn't discount anything that our, you know, men and women in uniform or in other sorts of conflicts may have experienced, but involves self-sacrifice, the application of one's individual gifts, talents, and abilities to advance some sort of greater good. And I, I think there are many people who would fit the bill of language warriors uh, who are devoting their time and energy and effort to not just preserving, but revitalizing indigenous languages and cultures. So you mentioned you have nine kids. Um, can you talk about how language plays a role in their lives or how Ojibwemuin plays a role in their lives? Oh, yes. It's never dull around here. I mean, language is, is a unique or represents the unique worldview of a people. And one of my jobs as a dad is to try to connect my children to the unique worldview that our ancestors have had and mm -hmm. worked and sacrificed so much to preserve for us, not just as cultural patrimony, but a toolbox for solving the problems that they could only imagine we'd face. And for me, running, you know, herd on my crew, I try to use the language with everything I can in our daily lives. I also, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual leader too. I officiate at funerals and medicine dance and things like that. So I will pack up my whole crew and, you know, under normal conditions, we would spend about four weeks camped out, you know, on the grounds of, for our medicine dance. It's like instead of me finding extra time to teach my kids something after ceremonies are over, I bring them to ceremonies and bring them in and put them in the middle of the work and they can have family time and ceremony time at the same time, you know? And so it's just more efficient. Um, you can run your dining room table, you know, with Ojibwe words taped on the salt shaker and even some pet phrases, like I'll do this with my kids, you know, to get up, I'll make them say that the food's delicious. Can I please be excused? And when they want to watch TV, then can I be excused to watch TV? But they have to do it in Ojibwe. You know, so they're like, oh, miigwech, minopogwadindaw bagadinaguna. Aha. You know, and daganawabandana mazanate sitchigan. Aha. You know, and so then you know they're going to remember those words because they want to do those things. And I think it's been really identity creating for them to be connected to those things. My oldest daughter, uh, Madeline, who um, probably had the most one-on-one -on -one time with me, you know, and also the most like language-rich learning environment where I was using Ojibwe with her all the time, um, has now like graduated from college and, you know, applied herself to further study of the language, stuff like that. So it's really heartening seeing a kid kind of operate with the language at that level. But it's not a guarantee and it's not easy. You know, frankly, one of the biggest predictors of the kind of language that your child will have is not the language that you speak to your kid. It's the language that they use with their peers. And 
This is why most immigrants, monolingual, non-English speaking immigrants, you know, will use that language with their children at home and their kids will grow up bilingual and usually will not be passing that language on to their own children as reliably and successfully because it is the pure language that is a more powerful determinant. Uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It does happen with immigrants. It happens with indigenous people too, but it just becomes a, a bigger challenge. So that's where some of the other work that's going on with language immersion schools and stuff is so exciting. That's really fascinating. I never even thought about that, but mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. And today we're hearing from Anton Troyer, a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University and an author of many books. He grew up in Leech Lake and works to preserve the Ojibwe language and culture and a lot more. So before you got on, um, we talked just a little bit about Anjibimadizing and which our dad, Bill Primo, was a part of as one of the storytellers um, in the project. And so I'm taking Ojibwemoin um, through the Minneapolis American Indian Center just um, over Zoom because I'm up in Grand Rapids. <laughs> and uh, it's just a really wonderful way to continue learning. And actually, I like I was saying at the beginning with my brother, every time I try to start learning Ojibwemoin again, I feel like I'm a beginner over and over and over again. But, you know, when the books came out just a couple months ago, I looked in them and I was like, oh my God, there's so many wonderful stories in here. Um, I don't understand a thing. <laughs> you know, I might see like a little word here or there that I understand. And then um, just after a couple months of semi-intense learning, I just opened them up again today and looked in and was like, I recognize more words. <laughs> more words anyway. Um, not a terrible amount still. I can't go through and, you know, read a story, but... So I feel really, really inspired when I open those books and know that there are these gifts in them that I could someday understand more, you know, the more and more I learn my own language. So if you want, could you just talk maybe a little bit about the project? Yeah, I can, I can tell you, first of all, you know, it's been a real honor working with your dad. He's a lot of fun. And, <laughs> you know... Yes, I he's <laughs> full of crazy stories and, you know, it's just nonstop laugh working with him all the time. So maybe it'll help to give a little background on how we kind of got into these projects in general. So at one point, uh, I was called to a meeting in Mille Lacs. You know, they had some stacks of government regulations and grants and stuff like that. And they said, would you be willing to go through this? Uh, we have some overages from grants and we want to do something for language. And I asked how much money they had left over from grants and then my jaw dropped. And I said, listen, you guys, um, you're not going to have an opportunity like this very often. We've identified 25 fluent first speakers of Ojibwe left in Mille Lacs. That's it. 25. And... Why don't, instead of like pushing them harder to teach more kids, you know, 
why don't we set them up to teach people our language for hundreds of years to come? Let's work on some projects that have real lasting value. And let's develop some kids' books and develop, more than that, a literary tradition for what was formerly an oral language. Let's develop Rosetta Stone so we can push every one of these wonderful speakers out to every single Malax band member anywhere on planet Earth through their phone. And we will overcome some of the biggest barriers for language learning, which include time and space. Not everybody's living in a house with a fluent speaker. And you can amplify those voices and many people can engage with them in many different formats. There will be an app that'll have Pappy Primo there and others, um, you know, doing video demos and, you know, with vocab lists and expansion activities that will be able to interact with you and correct your pronunciation as you interact with the app in real time. Uh, and I, I think it will provide a high level of engagement. And this will be a six-year development. There'll be one year released every year for six years. So this will be more than any other indigenous language has done. They did two years with Muscogee Creek. They did a year with Diné, Navajo. Um, and we'll have six years. So I, I think it will be a major contributor for language revitalization. It still doesn't replace fluent speakers. And then the books, we convened a team and started doing this kind of work a, a long time ago. But it was a bit scattershot because we... You know, when we got a grant or when we could get people together, you know, we'd get a little spurt and kicked out a few books. So we did four um, that we had produced through Wigwas Press uh, or the Minnesota Humanities Center. And so, so it was really exciting to have, you know, a lot more support and to be a lot more regimented about it. And so then we got cranking and uh, yeah, the first three books are out. We've got two more in that are going into production here shortly. And once COVID eases up, I expect us to be able to do probably three books a year for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, I can never count on, you know, all the different types of support to be in place every single year. But right now it looks like there's really great support um, at the political level, financial level, you know, all these different things. So I think we will be able to build a library uh, for the kind of world that we want our kids to live in. You mentioned um, the pronunciation feedback. Mm -hmm. That seems like such a game changer to be able to learn a language. I know that's one of the main like stumbling points. There's so many uh, syllables and consonants going on in front of me. Like as a language learner, like where's the stress or not yeah. and um, all those things. So that's that's pretty fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, languages are complex and there's so many parts to them. So, you know, developing your ear, listening to the language, like a kid's going to hear a language for a year before they say their first word, mm. you know. And so you need to have the log, log the airtime. There's, you know, pronunciation, there's grammar. Ojibwe has a very complex grammar system. You know, syntax, how you put narrative together is a whole nother game. And so there are a lot of pieces to this that require a lot of thought. And I think something else that's helpful with a partnership with someone like Rosetta Stone is that 
they've had to think about a lot of this for a lot of time. So they ask really good questions that kind of help us sharpen up our own um, approach and make sure we're not missing something. But ultimately, we're we're developing this. You know, people in Mille Lacs are developing this. That's awesome. I think both those projects are so mm. are so amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was curious. When did you start learning Ojibwe and when did it like really click with you? I mean, I did have language exposure when I was growing up. I got hauled around to ceremonies. I met a lot of fluent speakers. Uh, my mom was intentional about trying to teach us culture and, you know, stuff like that. But I don't think I valued any of that very highly. You know, I was trying to run away. And it, was, it took me leaving home to realize how important home was. And it wasn't until really I had finished college that I really applied myself seriously to language learning. And I, I kind of stumbled into it a bit by accident. I, I wanted to go through ceremony, I, and I sought out Archie Mose, who was born in 1901. He was an important spiritual leader. And you know, I came to his house. He'd never met me before, and, I, and I, when I finally found him, he opens the door and he says, oh, I've been waiting for you. And I said, what? How could you be, be waiting for me? You know, he doesn't even know who I am. And I don't know, I, I must have looked like someone from this dream he had. And, but for some reason, he just opened up and he, um, you know, he was so kind and good to me and put me to work very quickly, hauling him around to funerals or whatever. And I ended up crashing on his couch for months on end and pestering him incessantly and um, I learned a lot about our culture and our language together. He could speak English although he preferred to speak Ojibwe and his English was a little clunky. I remember driving him to the bank to cash a check and he he, uh, couldn't endorse his check. I was still one of the best educated people I'd ever met and I fell in love with our language and I, I wanted more. I still viewed myself as um, an imperfect carrier. And I, I was always just trying to position myself to learn. I, I was never, I'd never set a goal to like be a professor of Ojibwe or something like that. Um, and I'd never set a goal to be somebody who, you know, officiates at ceremonies. It was kind of like Forrest Gump, you know, every time I went somewhere I was running, I never thought it would take me anywhere. It was kind of like that. And then at some point, um, I did start dreaming in our language and, you know, thinking in our language. And when I made those transitions, I I really thought I was kind of reaching some kind of transition point. I still feel like I must sound like a ninth grader or something you know, sometimes, and I'm still um, learning things and in awe of our really great cultural carriers and first speakers of the language. But um, at the same time, I realized that I have a contribution to make and I, you know, have unloaded the psychological baggage that was in the way and have simply stepped up to lean in and, and do what I can to advance our language. And I find great personal fulfillment in that and in the way that it segues or connects with so many dimensions of our culture. Uh, many, many people find genuine healing, you know, 
physical healing, emotional healing, belonging through our cultural toolbox. And so helping people through that and to that has been really, really powerful. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today you're hearing from Anton Troyer, a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University and an author of many books. He grew up in Leech Lake and works to preserve the Ojibwe language, culture, and a lot more. Kind of uh, talked about it a little bit, but what do you love about the Ojibwe language? Oh man, I... There's so many, so many things that I love. And, and honestly, this is probably the, one of the most important questions to put to people because, you know, what does it take to be a good parent? You know, I, you could give somebody a book, like what to expect the first year or something like that. But really what it is, is just falling in love with your kid. You know, to be effective with learning a language or teaching it, it's the same thing. If you fall in love with your language, you'll be motivated to figure the rest of it out. For me, I think the way that language conveys worldview has been so powerful for me. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll use examples like our word for an elder, gichiyaya'a, literally means great being. Our word... For an elderly woman, Mindamuye means one who holds things together and describes the role of the family matriarch. If you're operating in Ojibwe, you don't have to say respect your elders. It's kind of built right in with any word you could use to talk about them. And, you know, in English, it's so different. What do you got? Old woman, elderly woman, aged woman, hag, you know? And so there's a way that language reflects the values of a people, but it also shapes the values of a people. And I just find so much in that, you know, like as you dig deeper into the meanings behind native names, our clan system, you know, the words we have for places, there's just so much richly textured worldview. It, it's beautiful. Awesome. Well, Chimi Gwech for joining us today very much appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to meet you both. And yeah, uh, yeah it'll give me a whole new perspective working with, uh, with Poppy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ho- hopefully he has plenty of more crazy stories to tell. <laughs> <laughs> Miigwech. Yeah, yeah miigwech. Yes, miigwech. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Okay, cool. Gigawaman. Aha. Nice. You know, that was so awesome. Yeah. I really I really liked when Anton was talking about treating the Ojibwe language not as, you know, an add-on or as something mm-hmm. extra, but as central um, in your daily life. And so now that I'm rethinking about, you know, how am I learning the language? Yeah, if I take it little by little and, you know, think of the vocabulary of my daily life or the sentences that I could use in my daily life. Maybe I'll make a little more progress, <laughs> lasting progress. <laughs> That's definitely true. So Chimigwech, Dr. Anton Troyer. Yeah. Really appreciate your valuable wisdom and words today.
Yes, Chimigwech to Anton Troyer, a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University and an author of many books. He grew up in Leech Lake and works to preserve the Ojibwe language, culture, and a lot more. This is Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine, produced by Minnesota Native News with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. If you'd like to hear more of our conversation with Dr. Anton Troyer, you can find an extended version of this conversation on our website, minnesotanativenews.org, or on the podcast stream. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech for listening. Gigawabamin. Gigawabamin. <laughs>